9, and I want to read the whole of this chapter. I'm tempted to say it may be our um, experience to have one message each on these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. It may be that we have a little more than that. We'll have to see. But reading together, Romans chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Let me just pause in that text. We'll not dwell on it in our message this morning, but it's sadly a controversial text, and it's because of some manuscript discrepancies, but that's its own topic. Uh, but it is a text. It is one of, well, as I was taught in seminary, seven proof texts uh, in the New Testament Scriptures with regard to the deity of Christ. It is Christ who was over all God, blessed forever. Amen. But continuing reading, verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children not being yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Osi, this Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. 
But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Well, amen. We end our reading. Trust again the Lord to bless the public reading of his inspired word. I'll ask you to join together with me and let's again bow our heads and hearts before the Lord. Heavenly Father, again we approach the throne of grace and ask for grace, even in the reading. Lord, some of these words, hard and points of controversy. Lord, some of these words, precious, comforting, helpful words to those who believe. And so grant us grace as we would begin to consider such words today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans is one of those epistles that clearly transitions from an opening section that is primarily doctrinal to a closing section that is primarily practical. Now, we comment often that's a distinction that is to be taken uh, with a grain of salt. If we get into the mindset there's nothing practical in doctrine and there's uh, no help for us no doctrine in any of the practical sections, then we'd certainly be wrong. Uh, but when we studied Ephesians a few years ago, we saw very clearly that there's a, there's a clean break in that epistle, and there's actually a prayer, a wonderful apostolic prayer for God's people in between that doctrinal section and the practical section. And we saw in that epistle, it's one that opens in the heavenlies, and it closes in the trenches with the armor of God as those that are going forth in this world. Well, Romans is clearly such a book. We've come in our conclusion to chapter 8 almost to a virtual doxology of praise following his extended treatment not only of the doctrine and the unfolding, a, a logical unfolding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but the impact of that gospel in the lives of the believer in chapter 8 taking us all the way to glorification and the marvel of the security of God's people in that divine purpose and plan. Chapter 12 then famously opens with the therefore. I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Very practical application the rest of the way out. Well if chapter 8 ends with the, the finishing, the summation of the, the theological point of the gospel and chapter 12 opens so clearly with the admonitions to practical holiness based on that gospel what's going on in chapters 9 to 11 these three chapters of Romans have been variously described <coughs> critical scholars have not hesitated to say that they were inserted some have argued even among believing scholars that this is the highlight of the epistle. Others, Martin Lloyd-Jones, notable among good and godly scholars, <coughs> has gone to the opposite end of that spectrum and described these chapters as a type of postscript to the gospel that he's already unfolded. <coughs> Perhaps the most common suggestion, certainly the one that I grew up under, <coughs> is that what we have here is a sort of parenthesis. Some suggest that in this parenthesis, there's the, the problem, <coughs> if you will, excuse me, of Israel. Well, I'm going to go along today, and I must confess that I had not seen much of this in earlier years, but I'm going to go along today with those and throw my lot in with the ones that see this, these three chapters, as a continuation of Paul's pattern of answering objections that might flow out of what he's previously taught. In a moment, I want to read some highlights from all three of these chapters to demonstrate this. 
But let us pause and again find our place in the unfolding of this very thoughtful, logically expressed epistle. What has been the focus of chapter 8? It's been assurance. He's come to the culmination of the unfolding of the Gospel. He's even talked in chapter 8 about different bullet points, if you will, the major bullet points in the history of redemption. From God's eternal purpose to His foreordination to the predestination, the justification, and the glorification of His chosen people. And there's no, there's no blank, there's no, there's no falling out in any of this sequence. Whom He justified, then He also glorified. And that which is yet future is spoken of grammatically as past, as accomplished, because of the divine certainty. And of course this assurance is based on the sovereign predestinating purposes of God. And so that is where Paul in his teaching has just been. That's where he's left us. And so we might understand that the astute observer might say, but wait, didn't God sovereignly elect Israel? And where's Israel now? Well, they're primarily in unbelief. I mean, you're writing this epistle to Rome, the capital of the Gentile world. The work you've been doing, Paul, is in Gentile cities around the world. God's bringing in Gentiles to His church. And Israel, if we can borrow the language of chapter 11, is cast off. If God elected Israel, if God sovereignly intervened and predestined them, foreknew them, and they're cut off. Well, how can I be sure from all you just said? He's predestined me. He's chosen and worked in my life that I won't be, in the end, cut off and cast away too. And I think really that's what Paul is dealing with in Romans 9-11. to Paul's treatment here doesn't open with, Thou wilt then say, as he says in other places, though they similar phrases appear scattered in these chapters. And this section is longer than his previous answers to objections, to be sure. But this objection seems to have teeth. God did elect Israel. And Israel's cut off. So Paul's clearly here dealing with a problem. And it's a problem in which Paul is personally and emotionally engaged. That's why I think he takes so long to work it through. When he finishes that almost doxological conclusion of chapter 8, it's as if he takes a deep breath and pauses and says, you have to know my heart and my soul is in what I'm about to explain to you. This is a real question. Now let's understand this whole matter of the Jews, those, as I said, that I came up under that viewed this as a parenthesis and the problem or the place of Israel. This isn't the first time Israel's come up in the book. I mean, in the thesis, he speaks about this Gospel of which he's not ashamed to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. When he's been going through the section of the revelation of wrath and the depravity of all men, that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, recipient of Scripture and non-recipient of Scripture alike, we're all recipients of revelation, we're all accountable to it, and we're all under condemnation by it. And as he works through that, he speaks in chapter 2 of... <coughs> Jews that are lost and their circumcision is of no profit to them. There's already been a question come up. Well, what advantage then hath the Jew? Chapter 3 opens. What profit is there of circumcision? And Paul says, much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. They had greater light shining, to be sure. So this question of Israel is not new. It doesn't just pop in out of the blue. 
here in chapter 9. Read with me if you would. I want to scan some highlights of these three chapters to underscore what I think is plain to see that this is what Paul is wrestling with. The question of the place of Israel, elect Israel, they're being cut off. Well, what does that mean about God's election in general? What's it mean about the security of anybody that God's chosen then? So skim with me if you would, beginning in chapter 9, verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now we're going to come back to this. This is obviously important in our unfolding of these chapters. He's giving us a distinction here. But he just introduces this after that very personal opening to the chapter. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. God isn't unfaithful to His word. God doesn't fall short of His promises. His election isn't vain. Now skip down if you would to verse 24 of chapter 9. Even us whom He hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now skip down to verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. What was that offense? It's the offense of confessing our total worthlessness, our unworthiness, our need of a Savior. And for Him to take our offenses and shame upon Him. But skipping over now to chapter 10, read with me there verse 2. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now down to verse 12. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Down to verse 21. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I stretch forth my hands into a disobedient and gainsaying people. Chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away His people? God forbid. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars. I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God to him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time. There's a remnant according to the election of grace. Then down to verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. And I say that's just a sampling through these chapters to show that His theme and His purpose is quite clear and quite consistent. What is going on? Here we see Israel elected and yet Israel cut off. Here we see Israel blessed and yet Israel in apostasy. Can that happen? to those that are the elect of God. Now, when we come to these chapters, obviously Paul here is giving an answer to that no. The calling of God, we'll read in these, this section, is without repentance. God doesn't 
turn back from His promises. So you need not fear when you see what's happening in Israel that somehow God will turn back from you. In many ways, what God is doing in these three chapters, some have described as a theodicy, a defense of God. Paul is defending the faithfulness of God. And if we really were to put a title to the whole of these chapters, or certainly our thoughts for today, it is simply this. God is faithful. He's faithful to His Word. He's faithful to His promise. He's faithful to His sovereign electing grace. Now, having sought to determine the theme, certainly there are pieces of these chapters that touch difficult topics. Chapter 9, in many ways, comes to our attention more strongly, I guess at least for some, than the discussion of God's sovereignty of God's predestination that we've read of and seen discussed in chapter 8. But when Paul comes to deal with the questions here, these hard passages that touch on predestination and even approaching that doctrine we call reprobation, that's not really his theme. He touches upon them incidentally along the way. Paul isn't entering into philosophical discussions. He's not wrestling through some of the things theologians get into when they start talking about the purposes of God. I had to lecture within the last couple of weeks on the debate among Reformed scholars with regard to the decree of God. I say that in the singular. God's ultimately God's decree is one indivisible decree that encompasses all things. But when we come to his decrees with regard to saving his people, I should get you to take out a pencil and paper today. Are you a supralapsarian or are you an infralapsarian? Anybody know? If you're confused, that's okay. I'll just enter just define the words for you. Uh, lapse is a version of the Latin for fall. And the whole question that those big theological titles are wrestling with is where does God's decree of election come with regard to His decree to permit the fall? Does God decree election first? Hence you would be a supra-lapsarian because election comes above the fall? Or does God decree to allow the fall first and then afterward decree to elect His people and not to elect others? Hence you would be an infra or a sub-lapsarian. Um, it's interesting to read. Reading one man who went on for 30 very careful pages and was quite fair to his opponents, but you read such phrases like, a rational mind must purpose its end before it purposes the means to that end. Well, we already should have a problem, and this is what I say Paul's not trying to solve in any portion of Scripture really. We're really getting to the edge and maybe already over a little bit just hanging on when we start discussing from our finite yet unglorified rational perspective how the mind of the infinite has to work. I think there's no place better for us to take the words of Isaiah. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. Neither are my thoughts your thoughts. So that's a question we have to just back up and say, we might not ever be able to resolve this one. Well, Paul gets a little close to that edge in this chapter, but he doesn't approach the edge and he, he doesn't bring it up from the perspective of theologians trying to fix their charts and their systems. It's just an incidental touching on these doctrines as he's just wrestling with the question is 
Is God faithful to His purposes or not? Can God's purposes be frustrated? Can God's purposes be reversed? And He's going to comfort us by answering, no, they can't. No, they won't. And what might seem to be a frustration of His purpose and His election of Israel and what we see in Israel both in the first century and we see in it today is not a frustration of the purpose of God. And that was a little longer detour than it was supposed to have been. So I say Paul touches in this section on the doctrines of predestination and even reprobation, but he's not trying to answer philosophical questions. It's not his main point. He's going to touch upon things that are going to engage us with regard to our prophetic understanding. What's going on with Israel? Is there a future for that people as a nation? Well, you may find, interestingly or even shockingly, when we come to chapter 11, that there are good scholars of all three major millennial outlooks that do see a future, a revival among national Israel in chapter 11 and in the last days. So he's going to touch on stuff that gets into our prophetic questions, but that's not his main purpose. His main purpose is defending the faithfulness of God. He's just preached the 8th chapter. That chapter of assurance. A chapter that opens. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And closes. Nothing. Nothing in heaven, earth, or hell can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because what He has from eternity purpose to do is outworking in our lives and bringing us to glory is certainly going to come to pass. But the question then has to come. Well, He elected Israel. What about then? I think that is what's going on in chapters 9-11. to He is very fully and with a full heart dealing at length with a question that he's in the middle of because it's his people. We'll try and get to more specifics than the answer to that question along the way. But I want today from reading chapter 9 together to just put before you three statements with regard to the election of God and again, just under the truth and the theme that God is faithful. God is faithful. The first statement is this. Election is purely gracious. Election is purely gracious. When in verse 6, Paul, after that heartfelt introduction, which we will come back to, introduces this answer. He says, not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect. God is faithful. His Word, His promises, His electing grace, if we read all that into it here, isn't going to be frustrated. The point you have to know is they're not all Israel which are of Israel. Now we just pause here for a moment because this touches one of our bigger questions. Paul clearly... <coughs> is using the title Israel here in a distinction from Israel as a nation. They're not all Israel which are of Israel. We talk about this, and I think rightly so, as spiritual Israel in contrast to national Israel. We do the same thing in some of our New Testament doctrinal terminology. We talk about the visible church People that come to church versus the invisible church. Those people from among that greater body that are actually saved. That are actually believers. 
Well, so it was in Israel. There were people in the nation that were Israelites. They were of the seed of Abraham. They were the people, as we see that wondrous description, of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. So the advantages, the place of the nation, clear. He's answered that already in part in chapter 3. What advantage do they have? A lot of advantages. They were the ones that received the Scriptures. I mean, that's a pretty big deal when compared to the Gentiles. But when he speaks then of this distinction, he then enters into this sadly often controversial section about election being purely gracious. And if you work through his argument, we read it, we're not going to read at length again. But he begins to unfold here just being of the seed of Abraham doesn't make you part of this Israel. There was one that was born of Abraham that wasn't born according to promise. He's not named here, but the whole sequence from the Old Testament narrative about the birth of Ishmael is put before us. The promised seed, Isaac, hadn't come. Abraham and his wife Sarah are getting old. They're, they're past childbearing years. What's going on? And of course, we know the story. And a point of unbelief. Both Sarah and Abraham enter in. Well, we'll, we'll get this figured out. And she's given her handmaid to Abraham and Ishmael is born. Paul talks about it in Galatians. Children of the promise versus the, the children of the handmaid. Well, so it is here. Ishmael's Abraham's son as much as Isaac was. But there was a promise upon which Isaac's birth was to come. But wait! Isaac came, married, had children, and there were some of Isaac's seed that weren't received. Jacob and Esau. And we have that remarkable section here about the unconditionality of election. The children not being yet born, neither having done good or evil. It was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger. Well, that's unconditional and that's even out of order. The, the firstborn is supposed to have preeminence and the second one is underneath him. But not in God's plan. As we said often along the way, I think there are just so many times through Scripture that God so subtly, as it were, focuses our eyes upon the second and not the first. Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob and Esau to be sure, talked even about the tables of the law. The first of those tables etched in stone by the finger of God were not the ones that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Those were shattered. It was a second table that went in the Ark. And so it is with the representatives of men. First Adam. Sin, condemnation, and death. It's the second Adam that brings us righteousness, justification, and life. And so here... It's not even just belonging to the seed of promise from Isaac because from Isaac's seed two came and yet one was rejected and one was accepted. Commentators actually debate whether this whole section here about Jacob and Esau should be looked at as individuals which Jacob and Esau certainly were or whether they should be looked at as nations. Jacob was named ultimately Israel and Esau Edom as we've even recently seen in our survey of the minor prophet Obadiah. It doesn't really matter. The whole point is still here. The sovereignty of God in receiving one and choosing one and in rejecting another. Remember in our authorized version translated hated there. It's not uh, an emotional point of malice as we normally only use the word, but a sovereign renunciation 
the questions that come here with regard to that electing grace, and even the questions that approach with regard to the corollary of reprobation. It's amazing. I remember when, I guess in the summer transitioning from undergrad to graduate school, I had to start wrestling with these harder tales and questions. I had to come to Romans 9. One I saw treating it very powerfully said, Paul doesn't rebuke the reasoning of the questioner in Romans 9. He rebukes the impiety. Who art thou that replies against God? You see, if you look at these doctrines, even election and reprobation that are so difficult seemingly to us, but I think difficult only when we don't take God at His Word and when we don't admit our fallen, depraved condition. For man to be, as it's stated elsewhere, appointed unto his condemnation. What is true of the work of God in these things? Can I just bring you quickly to a summation of it? In looking at fallen humanity, looking at those he described in chapters 1, 2, and 3 as cut off and under wrath, all we deserve is hell. Anything short of that is a mercy and grace of God. Even the lives that the unsaved live on this earth. And that doctrine of common grace we speak of. All the good that men receive at the hand of God, short of saving grace. It's good that men do. It's good that men experience. Sun shines upon the just and the unjust alike. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust alike. Unsaved men can make remarkable discoveries. The field of medicine or the arts. And bless the hearts of fellow men. But these things fall short of saving grace. There are many ways the way that God moves to preserve the flow of history. I mean, history should have ended when Adam partook of the tree. According to the law, end of story. Hell for mankind. but God. And we see He lets history flow. And for no reason other than His sovereign good pleasure, for no reason other than He loved us because He loved us, not because we were worthy of love. He chose from eternity past a people unto Himself in Christ. And so election is sovereign and gracious. Reprobation. <clears throat> Looking at this same pool of the ruined sons of Adam. Reprobation is sovereign. It is the corollary of election because if he elects some, he is sovereignly chosen to pass by others. But it is not a capricious thing. Election, I say, is sovereign and gracious. Reprobation is sovereign and judicial. Election and salvation are based upon nothing in us. It's pure grace. Reprobation, while sovereign, is based upon something in the sinner. He is left to his own deserts. And even as we read, and of course Paul brings in the whole history of Pharaoh here. We can turn back. I remember doing the word study in OTI. Or was it OTT? 
whichever class it was. In the columns of Pharaoh's heart. Yes, there's a long column of the references where it said God hardened his heart. There's a column in the passive where the heart was hardened. And then there's a column where it said Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God sovereignly dealt with him and as we read here, for his own purpose raised him up that he might show his power in him. You think of that final day of a man that we see in Scripture that is a prince to come. <coughs> One that Israel, having rejected Christ coming in the Father's name, he said another will come in his own name. Him you'll receive. Paul speaks of the man of sin. God sovereignly will raise up and then ultimately and finally show His power in Him. Destroying Him by the word of His mouth and the brightness of His coming. And Paul, I say, engages in this defense of God. He just unfolds again the sovereign purpose of God. Election is purely gracious. It hadn't been based on coming just from Abraham's loins. Remember Ishmael. It's not based even on coming from the line of promise. Look at Esau. There's another Israel which isn't of Israel. And this we must understand. God is faithful. Election, I say, is purely gracious. Secondly, can I say and bring to us hurriedly, election is no barrier to a passion for souls. This chapter, and if you ever engage in debate, and if you have friends and fellow believers that are not Reformed, certainly you will come to times where Romans 9 comes up in conversation. And all the supposed necessities of what our theology has to mean, the caricatures are brought up. It's a great chapter to bring them to. I mean, if not, you know the, the famous story of the man coming to the preacher after he preached and he says, I have a problem in Romans 9. The preacher says, so do I. And the man says, it says, God hated Esau. The preacher says, that's not my problem. I understand that entirely. What I don't understand is it said, God loved Jacob. Well, here's another little anecdotal and yet not merely anecdotal part of Romans 9. Here this chapter that touches on those sensitive topics and our confession even as says plainly should be approached with care, with humility. But one of the caricatures is that if you believe that, you won't witness. You won't love souls. You show me a greater love for the souls of men than for Paul to say, I could wish myself cut off from Christ if they would be saved. Now obviously Paul can't be cut off from Christ. And obviously Paul would not desire to be cut off from Christ. He tells the Philippians, I've desired to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But he says, when I look at my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, and you think about that, even in the lifelong, the, the vocational ministry into which Paul is given, the apostle to the Gentiles, I mean, that's not the script he would have written for his own soul and his own purpose and his own ministry. He loved Israel. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He preached to them. He went first to the synagogues when he went to the cities. But his greatest fruit in ministry, obviously, as we're reading here this epistle to the Romans, came among the Gentiles. But I say this is one reason why this answer to the 
logical objection from what he's taught is so lengthy because it's not just a, a doctrinal matter to Paul. He's not, can we say, simply answering the deduction of antinomianism flowing out of an understanding of imputation, like the move from chapter 5 to chapter 6. This is His people. And if you have had any experience in coming into the Reformed faith that has dulled your heart and desire for the lost, then you need to come to understand what you profess a little better. You need to enter into your own understanding and experience of a gospel of pure grace. Election is no barrier to a passion for souls. And Paul unfolds that when he speaks of his people. He said we come back those opening verses when he speaks of the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, probably the temple and all the lofty ritual there, the promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom? As concerning the flesh. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. It's through this physical line of descent that the promise of Genesis 3 is fulfilled. Paul's heart is for them. But he can't change the Gospel in order to make them feel better, as it were, about themselves. Election is purely gracious. Election is no barrier to a passion for souls. And finally, election issues in genuine faith. Look with me at the close of the chapter. He marvels. He's dealing again in the middle of this question. Gentiles are being brought in. Gentiles are being numbered among God's people. We're going to see in chapter 11. There's a way in which Gentiles are Israel and some Jews aren't Israel. What do we say then? Israel, verse 31, followed after the law of righteousness and not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they sought it not by faith. It's the same thing Hebrews unfolds of the generation that came out of Egypt. They didn't enter into the land. Why? Because of unbelief. I was teaching the men this week Last week, whenever, micronometer, you know. Going through the difficult passages in Hebrews with regard to the perseverance of the saints, <coughs> eternal security of the believer. <coughs> you read Hebrews 6 and that catalog of experience these people had and they walk away. And it's impossible for them to be restored. Paul says we're persuaded better things of you. Things that accompany salvation. The whole answer to that problem passage is there's a lot you can experience with and among the people of God and not be a child of God. I want to paraphrase it. We've quoted it often. We have to be sober to realize how far some people might go in their experience of the church's gifts without experiencing her graces. I was telling the students, think of the very illustration of the Exodus. The generation that died in the wilderness, it's their children that go into the promised land. Their children that at Gilgal are circumcised. Their children that by faith go in parents' generation that were the reason for the 40 years wilderness wanderings, that that unbelieving generation would die in the wilderness. Which generation saw the Passover? Which generation saw the plagues? Which generation marveled when they had light and there was darkness that could be felt in the rest of Egypt? The unbelieving generation. 
They experienced a lot. And they entered not in because of unbelief. That helps our grasp of Hebrews 6 a little bit, I think. Well, so it is here in Romans 9. This cutting off of Israel, it isn't because of any unfaithfulness in God. Israel's going to be saved when we get to chapter 11. Why? Because they sought it not by faith. They were unbelieving. Election is purely gracious. Election is no barrier to a passion for souls. Election issues in genuine faith. None of Israel that believed has been cut off. None of God's promises have failed. So don't worry about all the promises I've just told you about in chapter 8. God is faithful. God's promises for sure. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and ask the help of Your Spirit and understanding well, even as Your Word speaks of itself at times things hard to be understood. And yet a humble heart that recognizes it deserves that wrath marvels in the message of grace. Marvels to understand, to see and believe that You are faithful. Prosper Your Word to us we ask, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <coughs>